Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 233rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Patty Kramer. Patty is the co-owner of Productivity Uncorked, a productivity coaching firm that specializes in helping financial advisors become more organized and efficient in order to have time to focus on what's most important in their professional and personal lives. What's unique about Patty, though, is that the heart of her methodology isn't around implementing technology tools to create more efficient productivity but rather about how financial advisors can reduce clutter in their work routines and better focus their time and attention on the things that get them out of bed in the morning and that they're most energized to get done efficiently. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, no matter what systems and processes a financial advisor is implemented in their practice, if they don't have a concrete plan for what they're going to get done that day, they'll have a hard time accomplishing very much. Why, as an entrepreneur herself, Patty realized the most important part of managing her own time is by knowing what she doesn't want to do versus what she does want to do, and why learning to say no is such a big deal, especially for financial advisors who so often build businesses early on by saying yes to anything they can that helps them survive the initial years, but then get trapped in the habit even when it's no longer actually beneficial. We also talk about the process that Patty uses with her financial advisor clients to create space in their professional lives starting with a needs and values exercise to identify those things they need to make their lives work and the values that they stand for, and then moving on to an ideal week exercise, which helps advisors see what they want to accomplish in and out of work during the week so that they can start taking control of their time, and how Patty helps advisors clarify how they work with their clients in order to set clear boundaries and expectations, because one of the most common reasons advisors can't get anything done in their daily workflow is constantly being interrupted by being too accommodative of outside interruptions. And be certain to listen to the end, where Patty shares some practical tips that advisors can use to increase their productivity and focus, particularly for those who have very cluttered email inboxes. How trying to do whatever clients want in the name of good service can end up undermining the advisor's service quality. And why the key to gaining more growth momentum isn't really about productivity per se, but the self-confidence that comes from knowing that if the firm grows, you'll have the capacity to handle it. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Patty Kramer. Welcome, Patty Kramer, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. I am so excited to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion and, and talking about the theme of productivity. You come to our industry as a, a productivity coach and you know, I'll admit, like I'm, I've, I've long been fascinated around the dynamics of productivity and trying to, I guess, squeeze as much out of the day as I can. For which, I guess, I have a pretty good reputation for. Because a lot of people ask me if I sleep. The answer is yes, I do. <laughs> but one of the things that that's fascinated to me, even my own sort of journey around productivity, is you know, when I when I was young, I came to productivity as a like. I'm trying to find like the cool new tools, the cool new apps, the cool new things to like automate more and get more out of my day and 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 squeeze a few more minutes here and there. And I I use a decent amount of that stuff to make pieces of my day more productive. But 
you know, and I know this aligns well to a lot of the philosophy of how you come to to coaching about productivity as well. But what I found over time is overwhelmingly the biggest thing that really drives productivity outcomes is essentially just where we decide to put our own time and focus versus not. You know, we saw a mini version of this even in the financial planning study we did recently that like advisors who use a bunch of technology in their financial planning process are not materially faster at planning than the ones who don't use much technology. The biggest thing that determined who has a faster financial planning process, the people who just don't schedule as many planning meetings. <laughs> that was the outcome. Like remarkably straightforward. Like you want to get through your planning faster, like do it in a three meeting process instead of a four meeting process. Or at least if you're going to have a four meeting process, make sure you're charging commensurately for the fact that you've added a lot of time with an extra meeting. Like it's it's the it's the choices we make much more than anything like the tech that we use that really drives the the productivity outcomes. Absolutely. I think that technology can certainly enhance your productivity once you get to where you are functioning and have really good systems in place. But it, the funny thing that I find, Michael, is that financial planners don't always plan for themselves. And that just goes for the day. So, and no matter what systems you have in place, if you're not, if you don't have a plan, you come into the office and you sit down and you look around and there's 19 things on your desk and you don't know what to do first. So you go and fill your coffee cup and you waste another 10, 15 minutes talking to somebody else. You come back, you still don't know what you're doing. And so it's no matter what your systems are, if you don't have a, an idea of what you're supposed to do and when you're supposed to do it, it's probably not going to get done anyways. So I think that's a, a big issue is just not really paying attention to what is done with their time. And that is what I find an awful lot of. I don't know if that affects you or not, but you probably have an exact idea of what you're going to do during the day. Like I'll admit for me, I think it, it really has evolved a lot over the over the years. I mean, early on, well, I mean, if I think back just earlier to my career, you know, first it was, you know, okay, I'm an advisor, I need to go with clients. So like what I do with my day is pretty straightforward, like prospect, 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 prospect. Like that that was, <laughs> was right. all there was to do. Didn't have any clients anyways. There was nothing else to do but go prospect. You know, at at a later stage of my career, I was a director of financial planning. And so my day was a little bit more spoken for in, okay, I've got people to manage and, and things to check in on and plans to construct or review. And, and because there was ongoing work that needed to be done for clients on an ongoing basis, the day ended up being fairly defined for me by just that sort of that continuous flow of client deliverables that our, that our team was accountable for. For me, it was really... At the point I made the transition and became a business owner, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, like, well, I get to decide what I'm doing or what I'm not doing or what I'm hiring for, what I'm not hiring for, what I do versus someone else does versus we just say we don't do around here for people. Like, it was at that point that it really started to hit me and impact me. Like, ju- just how much control you have with that as a business owner of like, no, you really just get to say, like, we don't do that for people here. Like that's right. not part of our offering. We we don't do that. Wow, that saved a lot of time just to say we're not going to do that anymore. And at the same time, to, to to get the decision of what am I going to do and what am I going to to hire for, expand our team to do. So, you know, we are going to do it, but I don't need to do it. And you know, the cool thing about entrepreneurship and business ownership is you you basically get to design that any old way you want. And the really hard thing about 
entrepreneurship and business ownership is that you get to design that thing any way you want. <laughs> right, right. I'd say in my estimation of people that I work with um, when I coach clients, probably about 90% of them are in control of their own time. Nobody tells them what to do or where to be. So entrepreneurs, even if you're within a firm, you still have your own book of business and you're running your own practice and nobody's telling you what to do. And so at that point, when you do shift around and you say to yourself, I am a business owner, I now get to choose, pick and choose who I want. And so you can, then you start to work on the business, which I know is such a trite thing to say, but you work on the business and not just in the business. And you get a whole different perspective of what it is you want. And, and I find it beautiful. I've been in business for myself for like 27 years now. I find that it's more important for me to know what I don't want to do than what I do want to do. And, and to be able to say no, you talk about being empowering. Oh my, yeah. when you can say that, that isn't something we do, you just get done saying, I don't do that, but let me tell you who does and you refer it or you delegate it. It's a beautiful thing. And you, you kind of let all that clutter, <laughs> I guess that's a, better, a good way of saying it, all that stuff that you don't want to do, just fall away. And then you can really hyper-focus on the things that do you know, set you on fire every morning to, to get out of bed. Uh, otherwise you're doing stuff and you're just wishing you didn't have to do it. And and that's never a fun, never fun to have to get out of bed and do stuff you don't like. So if you're a, a financial advisor or planner and you get out of bed and nobody's telling you what to do, stop for a minute. That's what I do with my clients is I, I create space for them to literally stop and think about what it is that they want. So often they don't, think about that. They don't stop and say, what is it that I want this to look like? What do I want to, what do I want to, what days do I want to work with clients? What days do I want to not work with clients? What do I want at the end of the week? What do I want at the end of the day? Who's most important to me? All the things that I, I bring into their life, I, I, I literally give them the actual space to stop and think about that. And most times it's the first time they've done that to like for that amount of time to give them the space that they need. So I think, uh, you know, you, you nailed it whenever you, you have your own business, even though you no, might not have reframed it that way. It's a good time to think about that and stop long enough to say, what, what is this all about? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And how do I want it to look? I love the way that you framed that being able to say no is very empowering. And I was struck, I don't know if it was deliberate or just the way that it came out, but, but you had kind of framed it as, as being able to say no is is very empowering. I, I find there's just a progression in how our businesses evolve in the in the advisor world that you know the the early years are just it's so brutal. It's so mm -hmm. desperate. It's so like we're just trying to get any any clients who will engage us in any way for any level of revenue to try mm -hmm. to survive and get to the next week, the next month, the next year so that eventually it grows to a point where where it's not quite so pressured. It just it's really hard to start a business from scratch. It's really hard to start an advisory firm from scratch. And we just see it over and over again in in our data on the the industry benchmarking research that we do that just it pretty universally takes three years before it it stops being so sucky. <laughs> exactly. There's really no other way to put it. And I find it it gets a lot of us into this mentality that you know, just when you when you go for several years of that much of a grind and that much pressure of always trying to find another client, some more revenue, anyone who will say yes, that just it's, it's anathema in the early years to ever imagine saying no. Right. Like you don't say no, you get through their nose. 
Yeah. We get them to say yes. <laughs> you don't say no. It just kind of drills into us to the point of habit that the problem I find that crops up so often is, is at some point we actually get to a certain level of clients, a certain level of revenue, a certain level of business and financial success. You hit a crossover point where it's actually okay to say no. And we're so hardwired that the only no's come from the client and you try to overcome them <laughs> mm-hmm. that it just doesn't occur. Like, you know, you actually have gotten to a point where it's okay to say no. Right. Right. In 1999, I started my practice. I'm a professional organizer. Now I'm a certified professional organizer. And in 1999, I started that. And nobody even knew what a professional organizer was, including myself. But then I decided to figure it out. So I started my business. And it's usually two and a half to three years also in that industry, in that business as well to see how long it takes to, to start having the phone ring the other direction, mm-hmm. at least a little bit. And then you start to realize all the things you've done for the past several years you don't that you don't want to do. And you start to get a little more particular. And that's kind of when people come to me is whenever they they hit that point. It, there's no particular year, but they feel stuck. I think people sometimes get to that point where they don't say no, but they want to say no. And they their bez- business has plateaued and they've, they're like leveled out and they want to go up, but they don't know how. And oftentimes it's because they can't say that they can't say, no, I don't want to work with you or no, I don't offer that service or no, I'm not going to invent something to figure out how to make that work for you. Because that's what a lot of times we do. We say, sure, I'll figure it out. And you spend three months trying to figure something out. And so I think that if anybody's listening and they're thinking that, you know, you get to that stuck point, sometimes that's something to think about. Do you, are you able to say no? Do you say no? Can you say no? Will you say no? And if the answer to any of those is, is, no, I will not do any of that, then it's, you, you might be stuck because of that. And, and I think that just being able to say no to things, just small things to begin with, can really be the stepping stones to getting to the bigger things. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question of, uh, I think just for anyone to consider, like, like what size would your practice have to be, however you measure that, like AUM, clients, revenue, whatever it is, like, At what size would your practice have to be for it to be okay to say no to the next prospect who is willing to work with you and you realize like you just don't want to work with them? Maybe it's about personality fit. Maybe it's about service fit. Maybe they clearly are going to want and demand things that you don't really want to provide in the business because it's not time and cost effective and they're not going to pay extra fees. Whatever it is, like whatever it is that would otherwise disqualify them. Mm-hmm. Early on, you would say yes, because you kind of feel like you have to say yes to everyone because we're just trying to get the revenue in the business to a certain place. So like, what threshold would it have to be if it was for it to be okay to say no? And is that, are you actually already past that point? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think people need to pay attention to that because it's, again, it's that stopping long enough to think, am I there? And if I am there, how do I get to that point where I feel comfortable saying no? And I think that that is a huge part of it. Just, I think once you learn to say no and you try it, what that does is it literally like unleashes you because now you are, when you say no to the things you don't want, the things that you do want start to flood in. It's really kind of a bizarre universal thing. <laughs> like the universe just speaks. They they see you saying no to the things you shouldn't do. And all of a sudden the right things start to show up. Of course, that's you had to make a conscious decision of what it is that you do want. 
and it's it's like clearing the clutter. If you ever cleaned out an office, you cleaned out your you know car, whatever it is you cleared out, or your just all the clutter. All of a sudden, things that are meant to be in your life start to show up, but they can't. And as long as there's a huge bunch of junk in the way, same thing. When you keep saying yes to the wrong things, then the the, the right things can't show up. But when you say no, the right things do. Yeah. Well, there, there's all this to me, just strange, attentive focus that that starts to happen as you just get clear on what you actually want to say no and yes to. Like I, I always think it's, it's the phenomenon of like that type of car that you never really feel like you saw that often, but you really liked it and you decided to get one and then mm-hmm. you bought that car and then suddenly you see it everywhere. It's like, Oh my gosh, I feel like everybody else has this car yeah. too. Reticular activator. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's, it's, it's just cause like, now that you went and got one, you're more attuned to it and you're watching for more and you start noticing it all over the place. Mm-hmm. And like, it was there all along, but mm-hmm. you just didn't notice it until you were ready to put some attention in that direction. And, and I see the same thing very much so as, as well of, of what happens when you just start getting more clarity on what you want to say no to and what you want to say yes to. I mean, sort of the, the truth is like the, those good opportunities were out there already. Either they were they were coming to you or they were maybe like one step removed. But in the past when you were drowning, you didn't have any time to think about it, to pursue it, to follow it up, right? Like someone would say an offhand thing in a conversation of, you know, someone that they know that that might need some help that you just didn't even want to pursue because you're like, yeah, I got like three other plans this week and I'm completely drowning. Like, I don't even really want to take on a new client right now. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you don't really follow up on that thing. But when it turns out they're from a company that you're actually trying to form a new specialization in and you say, hey, wait, I'd really like to follow up with that person. Can you give me an introduction? Because you said no to some other things and you have more time. And it turns out they're one of the senior executives at the firm and that becomes the pathway for your entire new niche that you now form and like grow your business for the next <laughs> couple of years, all from this one transition moment that like it was there. Yes. But you weren't ready to pay attention to it before if you were drowning and everything else. Yes. And, and just what I find is when when you get clearer about what you want to say yes to and what you want to say no to, you start finding those secondary doors and pathways as, as well that just you weren't going to pursue before. You just didn't have the time, didn't have the mental bandwidth. Right. And, and you know what else is that so many people know what they want. They even know the niche that they want to carve out, but they have this thing about guilt or people thinking that they're not serving everybody. Like, I feel bad that I don't, I, I didn't help that person. Well, that's not the person you're here on this earth to help. There are other people that are there for that. And so there, there's a crossroads where they, people get to that point and then they, they have to deal with all the emotions that go along with it. Like, I don't deserve to do that because I, I really, you know, I, I have to continue to do what I've been doing and talk to anybody who has a pulse because that's what I'm here for. But when you start, when you make a clean decision, and you say, okay, I'm going to focus on that. You cannot look back and worry about the people that you're not serving because they weren't your people anyway. But that's a huge hump to come over. And that that's that whole confidence level that, that I help people with. Because I think that you might be completely competent, but your confidence is so low that you don't even know how to, to get past that. And so realizing and, and testing it out again, it's like saying no to certain things to see what happens. And you'd be amazed that people don't like hate you <laughs> or, you know, people don't get mad at you. They just go to ask the next person. They don't, you know, if you say no, they're just going to say you might, you're probably the third person they ask because the other two said no, but you have to get past that emotion and get the confidence to say, 
I don't work, I can't work with you, but I know somebody who will, if, if you know somebody, or here is who we work with. If you fit those criteria, I'm happy to work with you. Otherwise, I don't think we're a good fit. And that is, those are some words that don't take a lot to say. And they're so well received on the other side. Because who wants to work with you if you're not the right person for them? And if you're being dishonest and being frustrated with them and, and dreading every time you see the caller ID with their name, what kind of, you're really not giving, doing a service. You're almost doing a disservice. So there's all kinds of ways of shifting that, that looking at that saying, you know, I'll, I'll work with you, but I really don't want to <laughs> say, I don't want to work with you. And having the confidence to say that is, again, that word empowering it. It's just like, it's like a million bucks being handed to you when you can do that. You make a really good a really good point that I, I I do think there's a phenomenon that we sometimes build up in our heads of like this this prospective client came to me and I'm I'm a good advisor and I'm good at what I do and and like I will I will like break their heart and ruin their future if I don't say yes to them because they need help and I'm like right here and if you actually get to the point of managing to say no like turns out you're like the fourth advisor they talked to already and they already had three mm-hmm. other people on their list. I'm like, they're totally mm-hmm. fine. They're not broken up. No one starts crying when you tell them like, no, I'm not going to work with you or I can't or this isn't a good fit. That like we we build it up a lot sometimes in our in our heads that like we are the only person who could be this this client savior and that we will destroy their financial future if we don't <laughs> take them on. And yes. like I'm not trying to say we don't do great stuff and that everyone listening isn't a wonderfully fantastic financial advisor. Like there comes a point where we might be taking ourselves a little bit more seriously than we need to. Like there are other good advisors out there. If you can't serve them, like find another good advisor and refer them out. And if you're Mm -hmm. not sure where to find another good advisor to refer them out, welcome to the stress that your clients have trying to figure out who a good (laughs) advisor is. So, you know, at worst, if you ever have to, this is actually, I've had a few advisors I know that did this and it changed their own marketing. They went and tried to find an advisor to refer people out to. Couldn't figure out who to refer people out to by looking at advisors' websites and realized how not good their own website marketing materials were because they didn't actually have the information there that you need to figure out who to refer people out to right. or how to, how to get clients as an advisor when it's, when it's your marketing as well. So you know, if, if, you, if you think it's hard to find an advisor to refer out to, go through the trouble of doing it anyways. You'll get a whole other perspective of what every single prospect goes through in trying to figure out whether your one of the legit advisors or one of the sketchy ones. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's also those people that are, that have, you have a personality clash with. I don't know if you've ever taken on any clients that you really just don't like, whatever that may be. Chances are that three other people didn't like them either. And that's why they're with you. And so you saying, I'll work with you. You're just being the yeah. sucker. <laughs> yeah. you- oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. There's a reason why this one flowed down to you. Yes, exactly. And it, just let it keep flowing on down to the next one because it's it's the person. It's, not everybody is perfect and not everybody needs to be fixed. Nobody is anything. It's just, a, it has to be a good fit. If you think of your practice as envision what it is you want, like your biggest ideal client, what do you want? And if you had all of that, your life would be awesome. So why would you want to let anybody in besides that? Because it, it's not why you started your business. You didn't go out there to be aggravated every day. You went in there to, to help people and to, to the ones that really, really respond to you and are a complete fit for you. 
and you feel that authenticity between the two of you. Otherwise, you don't have to say, I'll work with you. It just, it's too much hassle, too much hassle. So I'm, I'm just imagining you having these conversations with some of the advisors that you work with where like we start down this exact conversation and I'm going to bet the next sentence is usually something to the effect of, but Patty, you don't understand how my <laughs> firm has these unique challenges and problems. Like I have to take these clients. I have to work with these people. I have to do this. I have to do that. You know, like we, we hear it, but our firm and our situation is always the exception that doesn't fit what sounds like a really cool framework that you're otherwise espousing. So like, how do we get unstuck from that? Well, I, I agree. Everybody's unique, just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're a financial advisor or a financial planner, your business is built on nothing more than relationships. And if you hear that and you think that I'm right, that's great. If you don't, I want you to hear it again. Your, your business is built on relationships. And so if you think that you are unique, which is great. Everybody does have certain things. Every person in the world is different. They have a different brain. They have different thoughts and everything else. And if you think that what you have is different, great. Then find the people that that is aligning with. That's the thing. It kind of goes back to the same thing we were just talking about is not taking clients that you don't want to work with. If you like the person and you think you're a fit, because that, sometimes that's a criteria for some of my clients. I, they, they create their ideal client. And it might be just somebody that I really like down to earth. I don't care how much money they have. I just want to work with people that are awesome. And that's fine. So if you if you think that you're unique, just find those relationships that also think that you're unique and and build those relationships, develop them. And I think that going from there is, I think that's the direction you need to go in is just base it all on the relationship. And so for advisors that maybe at least start to get comfortable in this direction like okay I'm I'm going to I'm going to try to start saying no to some things or some bad fit prospects I'm going to try to get more focused in on on what we're going to go after you know I know for a lot of advisors that like the the sticking point isn't actually really what to say no to often at least deep down like we usually have a pretty good sense as to who's a good fit, who's who's not a good fit, right? You know, well, the math of it usually is pretty straightforward if it's a client of 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 limited means, you know, if if it's really not a good personality fit, usually like spidey sense is tingling in the first meeting. Mm-hmm. I I exactly. like I I cannot remember any situations of a client who was a surprising pain to work with, but seems so completely pleasant in all ways with no warning signs in the initial meetings. <laughs> yeah. There was always at least some warning signs in retrospect. Maybe ignored them and that's how they ended up being a client. But like there's always warning signs if you're mm-hmm. watching for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. So so I find that the surprise usually isn't who we should have said no to. It's what are we supposed to say yes to? Like what? What are we supposed to be going after? And 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 a fear that I find crops up for almost everyone of like, I don't want to make the wrong choice. Right? I want to. I don't want to pick the wrong niche or the wrong specialization, the wrong ideal clients, the wrong direction of my business, and then then you know regret it and have trouble later. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the like 
finding sort of the the courage and being able to say no to some things that aren't a good fit. How do you figure out what the what the yes things are supposed to be? Well, that's again looking at who you like to work with and and what what it is that you're looking for. But I think that you can really clarify once you decide yes, I want to work with this person. The next step is to have an upfront conversation with them, which is the step before they become your client, and lay out how you work. This is what I do. This is how we work. We have two meetings a year. One's in person, one's virtual. I don't know what else, whatever it is that you do. And you know, the first meeting, we're going to talk about this. The second meeting, then next year, we move on to the estate planning. Whatever it is, however you work. I'm not available on weekends. If you need something, you can email. I'm sure somebody will see it. I typically don't have evening appointments. These are all the things that you can say, right? Which is essentially just like a giant list of setting expectations. Like if you're going to be a client... Let me just explain you how it works around here. Exactly. In a very kind way. That's that's right, right. conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah not, a, not a negative, but just like mm-hmm. in a very literal sense. Like, let me set some expectations mm-hmm. about how this is going to go if we work together. Right. I don't do texting. I, you know, I tell them all the things that you do and all the things that you don't, don't normally do. You, you can use the word typically. We typically don't meet in the evenings. We never meet on the weekends. Be very clear because that upfront conversation sort of becomes an agreement. And if there are objections, well, I can only meet in the evenings on Wednesdays. Well, and if you never are available on Wednesday evenings and you're just going to say, that's probably not going to work for us. Those are the things. And I know that's not really, that's just how you eliminate those questions, those quote unquote surprises for the client later. They're like, well, you never told me you didn't meet in the evenings. You didn't tell me you weren't available by text. It, the, the things that are later discovered. So I think once you decide who you want, then you decide to, you need to, to clarify how you work and then deliver that information up front before you sign them on just to give an idea. I think that is so appreciated on the other side. If, if you imagine yourself as a client going and speaking to somebody that's, that you're going to hire, knowing what the rules is just, it's just basic common courtesy. So that now you know what to expect. And I think you can weed out a lot of people. Usually by then they're, they're pretty much in. And you may have mentioned a lot of those things. But having that solid, this uh, even a checklist or just a, a letter or something that spells it out and having a conversation about it is just saves so many headaches later on down the road. It reminds me, you know, many years ago we had Carolyn McClanahan on the podcast and and she had shared she actually has a a a standardized document she calls it her engagement standards mm-hmm. and it's like a three or four page document that just lays out like here's what we do and how we work with you and actually has a whole section of like here's what we expect from you as mm-hmm. the client to work with us like you will be responsive to our emails and phone calls in a reasonable time period right like if you're if you're not ready to reply when we send you an email that like we need your tax return for this thing, like you're not a good fit for us. And so they lay out all of these all of these details and it's just like a three or four page document. I, I think they spent a couple of years of like, oh, we had a thing come up with the client. Let's put that in the engagement standards. That doesn't come up mm-hmm. again. They, they build it iteratively, but it just becomes a thing that every new client signs when they're coming on board. So the expectations are set. Right. I actually am a recipient of that. My advisor 
said in the very beginning, if you can't meet us two to three times a year and come into the office, of course, the pandemic sizzled that a little bit, but, sure. but if you can't come into come the, to the virtual office now, but, yeah. <laughs> but they said, if you can't do that, we really can't work together because we value the relationship and we like to stay in communication and, and touch base at least two to three times a year, sometimes four. So that was going in. I knew that up front and that was fine with me. If she'd have said, you're only going to meet once a year, I would have had to decide if that was enough for me. And I, I don't know if I, what I would have decided, but I just knew. And that makes so much sense. The problem with not having the upfront conversation, though, is I have a client, his name's Dave, and he, he feels bad if he can't meet with a client. This is a part of that emotion thing. Right. So there was no upfront conversation. And this one client has been meeting with him like at eight o'clock at night for, you know, for years. And I said, well, how can you change that? And he said, I really can't. They'll get mad and they, they'll probably leave. And I'm like, well, would that be so bad? You know, at that point, you have to sort of weigh that out. Now he has kids and you just don't know if, if he wants to spend his Wednesdays at eight o'clock. Well, it gets right back to that point. Like, Dave, is your firm at a point where if they said, okay, if we can't meet this way, we're out of here, would you be okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I worked with him for I think I worked with him for three months. We have a two, two-sided two approach to our coaching. And then he went to work with Michelle because she helps do business development. And he he worked with me. We cleared his schedule. We cleared everything out. And he kept him and Han about these clients. And Michelle talked to him for t- two calls. And he just got rid of 30 clients. He just let go of 30 clients because they were just not serving him. And he made room for the others. So he felt so bad, felt so bad. Then all of a sudden he started realizing this is taking my time, my family time, my everything time. And he had a pretty bo- good, nice book of business, and he decided I didn't need those 30 on his books, and he gave them to somebody else, which was perfect. So it, it's just thinking that through, and now he had we're working on his upfront conversation so that in the future he doesn't bring somebody on who doesn't know what to expect. I think there's such a powerful a powerful point to that that story of just that that conversation of, well, Dave, like what would happen if you told them? that you just can't meet on Wednesday evenings anymore because you you want to spend time with your family. And, and he said, well, the, well, they, they might fire me. They might leave. And it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And? And? <laughs> and what's your point? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So you're outright saying that you would rather take their money than spend your time with your kids on Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. And there's some really clean language you can use. You don't have to be mean. People are always like, but I feel so bad and I feel so mean. You don't have to be mean. You're not being bad or anything. All you need to say is, my practice is growing and changing. We had to rearrange a few things. We're bringing new people on to help do things. And going forward, we're not going to be able to have evening meetings. You know, you you can cushion it and, and be very clear on it. And as long as you're being obviously honest about it. People go like, oh, okay. They don't really care as much as you think they do. <laughs> I think we we think our clients think about us all they the time. Just got into the habit. Like they mm-hmm. got used to it. Yes. You set expectations. And the cool thing is, is you can change expectations too and reset them so that people know what to expect going forward. Those boundaries and expectations are movable and they're, they're solid while they're there. But if things need to change, the world does not end. If it did, we'd all be still back in the Stone Ages or be even before that. Because things, what's the one thing? Healthy things grow and growing things change. That's something that I learned like 20 some years ago. And somebody said it to me and I thought that was really cool. So healthy things grow and growing things change. Your practice, your life, everything about you is a healthy thing and it's growing and then it's going to change. And people can change with you. They're not going to 
wither and, you know, write bad letters about you and, you know, they're, they're just go on social media and bash you. They're just going to say, oh, okay, now I know the new rules. I'm on. Okay. Or I don't like them. I'm leaving. Okay. <laughs> yeah. One of the early firms I worked at had this policy that, so over the years they had accumulated a lot of clients. It was, it was three advisors and, and probably like 800 clients cumulatively over the years, if I remember it correctly. You know, as you would expect, like some people we were working with on an ongoing basis, some people we hadn't seen in a year or two, or they would just call every now and then out of the blue. And so, you know, the, the business was at a good, pretty good place to the point that it was not, you know, not reliant on any one client, right? We'd, we'd kind of reached that crossover point. And so there was a process every year in December where the team would get together, not the advisors, all the, all the rest of the employees would get together and we got to vote three people off the island. <laughs> okay. We got to like whatever the three most dreaded client phone calls are, right? Like every firm's got those. That client's just like, <laughs> you find out so-and-so is on hold and it's like, oh. <laughs> the energy right, I need to mentally, room. I'm just going to leave them on hold for another 15 seconds. I need to mentally prepare myself before I pick up the phone and, mm-hmm. and deal mm-hmm. with whatever it is because it's always something, right? Yep. We all know who those clients are. Mm-hmm. So every year, the staff got to pick three clients who were always on like that list. They scored very high in what we called the PETA factor. <laughs> I the, know exactly what that is. <laughs> yep. So, and like people who are paying through the year was, uh, it would even be a conversation like, you know, it's going to be on the PETA list at the end of the year. <laughs> like that was, that was not a good exchange. If they don't straighten up for the, for the rest of the year, like you're going to be on the PETA list in, the, in December. So we would get to pick three clients every year that would get voted off the island. You know, in the grand scheme, very trivial revenue impact just because the firm had grown to a size that it could absorb that. It was still growing well, so Mm -hmm. we could replace that revenue. The, like, morale lift and time savings was exponentially higher than the revenue that was lost, so very good ROI for the business. But I remember, because I was still very early in my career at the time, I got to sit in on the meetings for the lead advisor when he told them. Oh. And I'd never seen what it was like to basically to, to fire clients who otherwise mm-hmm. didn't necessarily know, mm-hmm. know it was coming. And and so like very much the the I think the mindset for you know, for most of us, so like we're gonna go in there, we're gonna tell the client there's gonna be this like, you know, they're gonna scream, I how dare you, and then like flip the table at us and start <laughs> ranting. <laughs> In the room, right? Like all those things that we build up in our head. And, you know, what what happened every time without fail when, you know, John would go in there and and say, you know, we, we've worked together for a while, but I just, I don't think this is really a good fit anymore. You would start this conversation of, of just, hey, we've grown in different directions and, and this isn't a fit anymore. I forget the exact language he used, but like that was the essence of it. Mm-hmm. And the first, like the first comment from clients was always the same thing. And it was never like, how dare you? I'm so insulted. I'm so angry. Like all that stuff that we fear. It was just like, well, where, where do we go now? <laughs> like all they wanted to know is like, okay, if I'm being tired for like, where do I go now? Like, do you have another advisor? Am I supposed to go someplace? Like, where do I send my money? Like they didn't 
care about us. No, nope. they just cared about them. They're like, okay, so what do I do next? Like, where do I go? What, yep. what happens from here? Right? It's like you know, if you you know go through an awkward breakup moment with someone, then you know one of the most awkward moments, like right after you break up, and you're still just sort of sitting there across from each other. Like, so what? What, what happens now? Yep, <laughs> so like, true. That's all they cared about, and so you know the firm's process was. You know, finding three other advisors that they could refer out to, like here, here are three other people that you can you can go and talk to that may be a better fit. And so, like clients, just they just want to know, like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do now if we're not going to work together anymore? They're like, well, here's three names of other people to call. It's like, all right, I guess we're going to go call them. Like, <laughs> nice knowing you. And, and off they went. Like, it, we we so built it up in our heads of like how they're going to direct all this focus and anger and whatever else back to us. It's like, no, they just wanted to know what they do next. Like they didn't care about us. They just cared about them. Like not, not in a negative way. They care about them. Just like we get wrapped up with what's going on in our heads. Like they just wanted to figure out what they were going to do next. It's so true. It's so true. And if we helped them get to the next step, they just left faster and it was less awkward. <laughs> and much easier for you. Yeah. 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 Whenever um, you're talking to a person and I, I see this happen, it's sort of along those lines as people are, they're talking to a client, an advisor's talking to a client and they hang up the phone and they worry about this client and they, they, they worry about so much. When that client hangs up the phone from you, it's really kind of like they don't think about you anymore. I'm always the one to put myself on the other side. When I hang up from somebody, I'm done. And, you know, when if you t- drew a circle, it was like a pie, and you put one dot in there, that's that's how big of a part of their life you are. You're just a little dot in their life. And and a very important part. Don't don't ever let me lead you down the wrong path. There. You are, you're very important to them, but you're not, like, going to linger for them. They're not going to think about you. And, and so... Anything you do, just like the same thing when you're letting them go, they're just like, okay, what's next? I got to get going. I got stuff to do. I have a life to live. And they don't care as much as you do. Yeah. I still remember, you know, Carl Richards, you know, like wonderful connector and communicator with with clients, had, you know, these wonderful client relationships for years, ultimately got to a point where where he's he sold his client base as part of a merger a couple of years ago. I still remember he, he said like the, you know, the thing that, that, you know, the thing that shocked him emo- the most and he'd been warned about it, but he still wasn't really ready for it. Like he sold his practice and all these client relationships that he'd spent all these years with doing all of this incredibly intimate financial planning work. Nobody cried. <laughs> What's so no, sad? Nobody cried. Like told them that he was selling the firm. They were just like, so who are we working with next? And he's like, you know, well, I'm going to introduce you to Betty. She's really awesome. She's going to take great care of you. And clients are like, cool, that's that's great. Wish you best. And he probably was, he probably pondered that that decision to, to sell for the longest time and worried about his clients more than they'll ever even know. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we wish you the best. Like, cool. Yeah. Appreciate Appreciate working together. <laughs> well, and it's a, it's a compliment because they trusted his, Sell his, who he handed him off to, so that they trusted him that much to not put him in bad hands. Hopefully, absolutely right. Like huge vote of confidence and testament to how much they trusted him that they accepted that handoff. Right, like we build this stuff up in our heads. You know, they're like they'll be tearing at our clothes to keep us from walking away as we as we like ride off into <laughs> the sunset and 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 like nobody cried. No, we're our own worst enemies in many ways, almost all the time. That's part of that head trash and the brain clutter that gets in the way. We really think of a lot of things that will never happen. 
And again, like it's it's not to say the work that we're doing isn't important and that we don't have really fantastic relationships and and powerful connections with clients. But I think you put it well, but like we we build this story a little bit too far in our heads mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sometimes that just right, we're viewing it from our lens, but the client views it from the client's lens. And the client's lens at the end of the day is like, they just want to know that they're going to be taken care of. Exactly. <laughs> and they appreciate you and they love you. And I, I said that you do important work. It's it's just a matter of just looking at their side and don't never reduce your, your service work that you do. That's not what I'm saying either. It's just tone it down in your head a little bit. <laughs> so help us understand you. you you've, you've talked a bit about helping the advisors you work with, right? Like step one is sort of get to the point where you're able to say no to some things, right? Figure out what you what you got to do to get there. The no's become empowering. You can figure out what to say yes to then. You've also talked about trying to help advisors create space. I guess either space to figure that stuff out or then space to do whatever comes next when they figure out what the comes next is after they say no to some things and yes in a more right. targeted manner. So- like, how does creating space actually work? Because I'm I'm assuming, particularly in the context of, of the work that you're doing, right, it's the same sort of thing we see so often with clients. Like, clients don't come and hire an advisor when everything's financially great. Mm-hmm. They come and hire a financial advisor when things are messy or strange or complex or problematic or something's broken, and that's like the triggering event that gets them to come off the blocks and actually reach out and work with us. And I, and I got to presume in your world as well, like, you don't get to do productivity approaching with people who are already pretty good at productivity and trying right. to get to the next level. You usually get people who are completely drowning and working 72 hours a week mm-hmm. and miserable and unhappy and all the challenges that go along with that. Right. And you know, and you say like, hey, I got a great idea. Let's sit down and like spend some time really thinking about you know what we want this business to turn into and look like. And they're like, yeah, if I had the time to do that, Patty, mm-hmm, I wouldn't mm-hmm. be here. Yeah. So how does that whole space creating thing work? Yeah, it's it's a process. It's definitely not a, you know, it takes a long time to get there. So it doesn't take a, just one or two calls to get out of it. But when someone is feeling overwhelmed and, you know, really, really frustrated, I just normally just start really general and help them pick apart what it is they do with their time now. And I would say probably 85 to 90% of the time they have no plan in in their day. They just, they go in and whatever emergencies hit them, whether it's through phone, email, a pile on their desk or anything else, that's what they deal with. They don't ever really have an idea of what they should be doing. (laughs) So, right. So the day is whatever client meetings I've got, whatever emails I can hit for between the client meetings that you know, plan review I've got to do because I got that meeting tomorrow or Thursday and just the reactive stuff that shows up that I've got to deal with for the day because I came in for the day and there's stuff because I've got clients. So there's stuff. There's always stuff. Right. There's never an ounce of proactivity at all. And so what I do is I help them look at their time with them and, and I have them tell me what it is that they do with their time. But before we even get into worried about planning, I take them through a values and needs exercise which is so important because it it identifies what makes a person, what they actually need in their life to make their life work. That's the needs and then what they value or what they stand for. And so often when we, I have a list of words, they go through and they pick three of each, the three most important needs, three most important values. And we look at their time and we see 
we go through those individually and we look and see if they're being incorporated into their daily or weekly or monthly or any kind of life at all. If like they're being met, their needs are being met. So for example, if somebody says family is really important to me and they never see their family because they're working 80 hours a week or they never visit their parents or their grandparents or whatever it might be, then obviously it needs to be fixed. So having an idea of what they value and need really goes a lot deeper. And I take them really deep into that. And then we can start to look at your setting up what I call an ideal week. Now, I just like to say this out loud because I don't have a cookie cutter solution for everybody. So some people need this, some people don't. I have different things, just depends on where the coaching takes us. But these are some pretty standard tools that that can come in handy. But an ideal week is basically just a blank week that I have. And I help people create, if they got out of bed on a Monday and went to bed on Sunday, the following Sunday, what would their ideal week have looked like had they lived it? Besides being on a beach somewhere, of course, but just, you know, what days do you want to see clients? What days do you want to have prospect meetings? What days do you want to do your financial planning? When are you most inclined to do these things? And sort of, I don't want to say batching or time blocking is, is the normal terms for it, but it's, it's like creating an entire week. And I help them do that. And it's not always an easy task because there's that feeling of, I have so much to do. And so when we get what I call buckets, those are the things you have to do during a week. Like that's your, this is your job description, putting it into a different context and, and seeing it visibly different on a, just a list and then plugging them into the, to the time slots on the, the ideal week really has people start to think, my gosh, I do these things whenever the feeling hits me, or sometimes I don't do any of them because I don't get to them. And what it happens is it starts to weed out, you know, the the story of the the big rocks with Stephen Covey. I know you know that story. And that's the sand that goes into that jar. And it's the stuff they don't need to do. And they're just doing it. They should be delegating it, but they're afraid to delegate because then they might give it to somebody who is already overwhelmed, but that's their job and not the person that should be delegating it. So uh, helping them to recognize what should be delegated, what should be forgotten altogether, what needs to go on what days based on their, you know, everybody has their own rhythm. Like, Like there's morning people, there's afternoon people, there's evening people and setting it up according to your rhythms and, and really what flows best for you. And, and fits into your life. You know, one of the things about being an advisor is that you you basically have the ability, for the most part, to set up a lifestyle business, which means that you you build your business around your life. You don't build your life into your business. And that is like an aha moment for some people because they're like, I'm just, I, I just do, I just keep going and going, but I'm neglecting myself. But if this ideal week allows you to see what you want to do outside of work and you build that business into it. So if you want to take your kids to school in the morning or pick them up in the afternoon, or if you want to have dinner with your family several nights a week, or if you want to go out to lunch with, you know, whatever it is you want that you need to do, you put that on your ideal week and you start to realize and start to see that you are in control of this and you can create that week exactly the way that you want to, including your values and your needs and your lifestyle is you can actually design it however you want. That's the beauty of it. There's no limits to what you want to do. I have people that take off Friday because they can. Now, used to be a thing when you could work from home Monday and Wednesday, but now you can do that anytime, but after the pandemic. But just having an idea of what it is you want, creating that visual. Sometimes it takes you know a couple of our sessions together to get it and then tweak it as we go along. It really does set that stage for having a plan. And then obviously, 
course, the, the key to that plan is to have it in front of you and stick to it and commit to it because it is your plan after all. So what happens when you try to sit down to create this ideal week and like there's more stuff than fits into the week, which may be why I'm working 72 hours and have <laughs> reached out to you in the first place to <laughs> say I need help with productivity. Right, right. Well, that's whenever you start to recognize the things that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. So often, as I said earlier, people that can delegate don't because they worry that they're going to overwhelm the person they're supposed to delegate to, or they don't trust that person, or they they think I can do it better myself, or I'll get it done quicker. All the things that keep delegating from being done. And so I obviously work with them on how to delegate and how to allow someone to make mistakes and be okay with that initially until you train them well enough. As an advisor, you should recognize the fact that investing a small amount up front can really reap a ton in the other end. And so if you invest a couple of hours training somebody and teaching them and being patient with them, then you will, you know, obviously you're going to reap a whole bunch of hours on the other end because you're not going to have to do that stuff yourself. And it frees you up. You shouldn't be doing $15 an hour work if you're out there making a lot more money, you know, landing million dollar clients. It's just that simple. You just have to recognize your value and the value of the work that you do and make sure they're commensurate. And so I, I guess part of the ideal of setting the ideal week and setting the things that you want to do that like that you actually want to do in your ideal week is when you fill the week with that stuff and then you look at the list of things you're actually doing and there's, right, I'm, I'm literally envisioning like, you know, on the left, there's a list of all the things that I do. On the right, there's the calendar of what I want my ideal week to look like. I start mm -hmm. taking things from the left and putting them into the right. And then mm -hmm. eventually, the right is full because I filled my ideal week. And there's still things left on the list on the left of stuff I haven't placed yet. Like, that's your delegate list. Like, you just <laughs> figured it out by process of elimination. If you start placing the things you want to do in the ideal week that would look the way that you want to look at it, whatever is left almost by definition is here's what you've got to figure out how to delegate or let go of. Mm -hmm, exactly. And if someone like you, you have your, your, you have a lot of different things that you're involved in, right? You have a ton of different areas and so many people do, and you can have it all. Sometimes you just can't have it all at once. And so if you're working on something and you see this ideal week that doesn't have time to do certain things, there's always next month or next year or, you know, so not everything can be done at once. There's, there's a thing called a parking lot. You can create a whiteboard or something and, and have a list of things that you want to work on or projects you want to tackle because there's, you can't put 20 pound into a five pound bag. <laughs> I mean, you can, but it's very uncomfortable <laughs> and it doesn't work. So if you, if you have 180 hours worth of work to do during a 168 hour week of which you sleep a lot of those hours, you just, there's not enough capacity to do it all. And, and so that, that's whenever you had to come to have a talk with yourself and say, what can I do and what can I not do now, but do later? You have to just get some reality in the, in the whole mix, because unless you're a superhero, you really don't have that extra time. You can always make more money, but you can't make more time. So out of curiosity, just having seen a lot of advisors go through this exercise, like, can you describe for us what some, uh, some, ideal weeks look like? Because I'm just imagining for for some of us out there, like we're so buried in what we're doing, it's really hard to imagine like a completely different looking ideal week because we just only live the week that we live reacting in the world that we react in. Can you maybe give some examples of just like what what would ideal weeks 
look like or be shaped as? There's just different things that they do. They come up with their buckets and the buckets might include things like, like I said, client meetings, prospect meetings, COI meetings, all the meetings that you have during the week, which is, you know, a lot of them. And then administrative work, when you're going to do your financial plans, sometimes people have, they belong to a BNI or some kind of a networking group that they do every Wednesday. So that's their networking morning. And then they have, they schedule all their calls on Wednesday after that. Other people have trying to think there's not a whole lot that you have to do during a week when it comes to your buckets, because they sort of like client services incorporates a lot of those things. And so whether it's putting notes in after a client meeting, so you have a client meeting for an hour, you schedule the following hour or half hour to put in the notes or to do whatever it is that you do to update your system. And so it's just that kind of thing. Everything that you do that has to be done that, that runs your business And I would also include things like your workout. If you work out on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at six o'clock in the morning, or I know you don't do it at six o'clock in the morning, but some people might. No, I'm not. I'm I'm not a morning person at night, Al. I'm much more likely to be working out at six or eight o'clock at night than six o'clock in the morning, but but to each their own, to each their own. Exactly. Adding those things in family time on the weekends. I mean, I have people do it like the whole entire time. It's, and it's not something that you're ever going to necessarily live. I want, I want you to hear that. This is ideally what I want it to look like. So, for example, we, we have coaching clients here on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We never, ever, ever set up a coaching client because we work with them for a year at a time. So Monday and Friday, we'll never, ever have a solid coaching client time slot. That's, those are there for if we have to reschedule or if somebody cancels and we want to move them around, that's fine. Or if you want to work on, you know, doing your working on the business and that type of thing. So you have to make some decisions of, Some people don't ever want to see clients on Mondays or Fridays or Mondays and Thursdays. I have a client who doesn't see any clients on Wednesdays or Fridays. She's like, I I need to, I go golfing at four o'clock on Wednesdays in my league. I don't want to have anybody else. uh, I don't want anybody during that day so I can clean up. So there's all kinds of things that you, you just sort of get your rhythm and understanding. About that really quickly, because I, I hear this come up very often as a blocking point from advisors, like trying to think about rearranging their schedules. And, and it usually goes something in effect of like, how can you say you're not going to meet with clients on Wednesdays and Fridays? Like, what if they want to meet on on Wednesdays and Fridays? Like, isn't it kind of the definition of giving good service to clients that you're available to them when they need your help? No, that's two things. First, that's the upfront conversation. I don't usually meet clients on Wednesdays and Fridays, but number, number one. Number two, when you call your doctor, do you call up and say, I need to come in on Wednesday? No, you can't do that. They're not. They're just not going to. They're going to say, "Well, let me tell you when the doctor's available." <laughs> and so it, you're in the same kind of boat when it comes to that. You let people know what, when you work, how you work, and then they will fall within the confines. I often, when I start working with a client, productivity client, they'll say, "But I, I just want to accommodate. I want to be, you know." I, I ask them when they're available. Then they end up rearranging their entire schedule. And they, they move kids stuff. They do all kinds of things. And, and, and you shouldn't do that. And it's not about being service oriented. It's about being in control of your time. People respect that. If you have a client who calls you up and says, I need to come in and see you, you can say, okay, I'm available on Tuesday at 9am or with Thursday at three be better. Oh, neither one of those work. Let's go to the next week. How about, you know, when to give them the times that you're available. And if somebody schedules for you, 
then I highly recommend, and I actually require it, is you share your ideal week with that person so that they know and tell them when the time slots are. Like literally the times. I see people at 9 o'clock, 11.30, 2 o'clock on Wednesdays or whatever days it is, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Give them those exact time slots. And if they can't fit into those, there's always the exception. There's, uh, there's going to be the exception. And that's okay. But don't make the exception the rule. Don't make everybody, don't give everybody that, that opportunity to go off of that. People will wiggle their schedule. Well, I work with people that can't get out of work. Well, ask them if they can get out of work. And they usually can. You just never ask them to. Again, as, as you noted earlier, right, the, at some point, the expectations just become the, the, the default, right? If they're used to always having you accommodate to their schedule and never making any adjustments themselves. Well, of course, then they're always just going to keep asking you to accommodate your schedule and never make any adjustments themselves. That doesn't mean if you ask them to work with you on the timing that they can't figure something out. Right. People are pretty resourceful and they do, you know, like, well, oh yeah, well, I have a doctor's appointment that day. Maybe I can just extend it and I'll come over and meet with you. There's always a way (laughs) people can be creative. And there are some, and I know there are some clients that you would never want to, you know, because of the the value they bring to the firm or whatever. That's your choice. I mean, I'm I'm not here to make you do whatever you don't want to do. It's just a fact that you can be in control of your time and your schedule and your life if you wish to and not feel so frustrated continually shifting everything around, you know, for your clients because your clients don't expect you to do that unless you do that for them. So that's all they know and you can change those expectations. Well, and and even I mean I think the example you had earlier was was a good one of right like how does this work with my doctor? Right. So yeah, there can be situations like, hey, yeah, I got some health issues going on. Like, no, no, I really need to see the doctor sooner. What ends up happening, right? The the their scheduler may say, like, well, we'll call you if there's a cancellation, or you know, it looks like I can squeeze you in with the doctor tomorrow at three. It's going to be a limited time slot, but you know, we can get you in briefly. Read like when it's legitimately sort of an, an urgent situation. Sure. Yes, sometimes accommodations get made, but right. but at the same time, that still sets a really notable tone that for a lot of people is like, oh, well, if it's that problematic, like, you know what, it's not that urgent. Right. I'll take the I'll just take the next opening next Thursday. Right. Well here, here's the good news. As a financial advisor, you don't deliver insulin. So <laughs> there's really <laughs> nobody's gonna die, typically. So that's pretty cool. You feel the urgency and you feel like you, you, that's the client serviceness in you coming out, which is perfect. I, I love that, but it, it can be controlled on your end. So maybe a better example is your hairdresser or hair, your barber. You're not going to call them up and say, I'm coming in on Wednesday at two. Okay. <laughs> they're not gonna, Maybe the doctor wasn't a good example, but a hairdresser there, it's no, unless you're having a hair emergency, you just, they, they give you what's available and you can't really tell people. So yeah, it's it's just a matter of being able to take control of your time and not letting other people run you amok because I see it happen so much. That's why they don't get anything done. They're interrupted all the time because their flow is interrupted by meetings that they shouldn't have been having that day or that time. So which which really just gets back to getting comfortable in your value proposition, the relationship with the client in the first place to to, to be able to say like no, I don't have to continuously blow up my schedule for this client or for my all my clients just to retain my clients. Right, right. Your clients love you. You have to trust that relationship. 
that's another part of it is, is you have a really good relationship. And I think that some people doubt that. I don't want to make them mad. I don't want to hurt them. I you're not. They're, they're people and they, they get it. You're running a, a business. And they also love the fact that you're a busy business. Nobody, I mean, I don't want my advisor sitting there waiting for me to call. I want my business, I want her to be busy. I want, I want them to be just really, you know, getting a lot of clients. That means they're good at what they do. <laughs> I don't want someone that's not busy out there. I think that's another thought as well. So as you start building towards a, an ideal week structure, like how long does it usually take someone to actually get there? Or I guess at least get close since you mean we may not attain the ideal, but we're at least working working in that general direction. It doesn't take long. You know, you create it maybe over a couple calls, which is a month because we would talk twice a month. So maybe over a couple calls and then we talk about it and then we start seeing how you're living it. And it's a real big mind shift and it's very comforting for so many people to like have a, a map of what they want and they, they start to fall into it pretty quickly. It's, it doesn't take a long time. Just to give you a go back a little bit on, on the ideal week, and I was saying to create your buckets. Sometimes if you create a list of what you do, if you're having getting stuck on how you want to set it up on your week, is once you list them out, think of the week as 100%. So there's five days a week, and that's 100% of your time. So each day is 20%. So each half day is 10%. So if, if it helps, some people are more into numbers out there. If you say you want to have client meetings, how, what percentage of your week do you need to spend on client meetings, you might say 40%, which is two days. Prospect meetings, you might do 20%. Admin might be, you know, 10%. And just add, a, just create that visually on paper first with the percentages of each of what you want to spend your time on, making sure, of course, it adds up to 100%. <laughs> and then you can start plugging them into the ideal week. So that sometimes people get stuck with, I don't know how much time I need on client meetings. Well, how many meetings a week do you have? Well, six. How long are they? Six hours. Okay, so that's, you know, a day and a half or but however you schedule them out with your time. So so we've talked about getting more comfortable saying no, creating some engagement standards, going through a needs and values exercise, trying to craft the ideal week as an exercise. So what else are you typically going through with advisors in, in trying to get productivity up, right? Trying to get more focused in what they do. Some of the things that we work on, I mean, are the the technical things, not necessarily technology, but email. Sometimes people, I've had somebody come to me with 169,000 emails in their inbox, and it's usually anywhere between 50,000 and that. So email management is a real big part, and I have some really, really good ways of helping people to declutter their inbox initially, and then how to process email and not just check email. I, I got to hear though, like what, what how, how do you declutter? <laughs> I think that it's, it's pretty unrealistic to say, well, you have 160,000 emails, go through each one of them. I think that's pretty stupid. So I have people go into their folders and create a folder and whatever the oldest year is that you have in your inbox, like say 2014, I've, I've gone go back further than that, create a, an, a folder for each year. So you might have 2014, 15, 16, so different folders. And then drag that entire clump of 2014 emails into those folders, then 15 and 16. And just, just get them out of your inbox initially. I think that's huge because there's, you might not think that it weighs on your mind, but it, it does. It, it, it's just, it's annoying. So get them out of there. So now you might just have 2021 left. The fact is you didn't delete them. You just stored them. So if you ever needed them, because some people are like, I might, I might need it someday. 
which is the title of my first book, by the way. <laughs> so, you might need it someday, but you probably never will. So you, you drag them into those folders, get rid of that stuff. And so what's left, you can sort them by from, create folders for, if you, if you need to keep them. Sometimes you get publications or, you know, emails every day. Like I get news every day from different financial advisor publications. And I'll, you can sort them by from and either create a folder for that if you feel like you need to keep them or hit, you know, bulk delete. And if you don't know how to bulk delete, just uh, highlight the top one and scroll down to the bottom one and hit the shift key and tap the bottom one. And it takes the whole clump and you can drag them into a folder or you can delete them, you know, sorting them by from or from date or whatever it is. They're sometimes by subject. There's some really cool tips in Outlook also. If anybody is an Outlook buff, there's a, I'm looking at my Outlook right now. You can go in and do the cleanup folders, which a cleanup, if you ever found cleanup, you can clean up your inbox. And what that does is it takes every single email that has been in a string. So you've got the first one and you have like 30 iterations of it. It keeps the one with the most content and it gets rid of the other 29. Yeah, so it just kind of bulks and batches. Yeah, bulks and batches. So that's one way, quick way to get rid of stuff. But really, the the key to processing and managing email later on is as email comes in, you don't just check email. Please stop checking email on your phone and on your iPad and on your computer, because all that does is just everything falls below the fold and you don't see it. So start to act on it. You know, either you can either delete it, which is the the first thing is my favorite is delete it. If you've read it and it, you don't have to do anything, if it requires action, it can stay in your inbox. That's the only stuff you should have in your inbox is something that you that you have to actually do. Then you can file it, which is drag it into a folder. If you have don't have a lot of folders, you, folders are just like a file cabinet and it should be set up to, to the way that you think. So that's always, you know, create folders. Don't be afraid to do that. It's not, it's better to clutter up your folders than it is to have your inbox cluttered. So there's de- delete, action, file, and then forward. So if you have something you need to forward to somebody, forward it, and then you can either delete it or, or save it. But don't, don't leave it in your inbox if you don't need to, if it's out of your site. In Outlook, you can also drag emails to your calendar. So if you have an email that's from somebody that you had the meeting with, you can literally drag it over your calendar icon at the bottom left and drop it into the calendar and it'll open up an appointment. And now you can make an appointment with that and just set the date and time. The guts of the email goes right into that appointment, which is a beautiful thing. So there's just just ways to get around the email. One of my other favorite little tips is you double click to open up an email in Outlook and you can highlight the subject and delete it and type in the, what actually the action is for that email. So if you have to call Bob at four o'clock on Tuesday or find 401k numbers, whatever it is you have to do, just put that in the, in the subject and then X out and it'll say, do you want me to, do you want to save the changes? You say yes. And now that in the inbox, the subject is now your action item. Because so often the the subject does not match what has to happen. Right. But now you have a running to-do list in your inbox versus uh, just a bunch of junk or things that don't make sense as far as the subject goes. It sounds like the the essence of it is your inbox should, I think you said earlier, your your inbox should really only have the things that actually need action that you truly need to respond to. Everything else like 
forward it, delete it, or file it, but get it out of your inbox. Get it out of your inbox. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. And that, and it's not a storage unit. <laughs> That's what people use it for. It just uh, And I know the search feature makes it so lovely and all that, but I've, I've had so many people go from thousands and thousands, and now they try to keep under 40 or 30 or 20 in their inbox. That's their goal now. And so you pick a number at the end of the day that you want to be at and, and, and strive for it because it really isn't that hard. It just, it's a lot easier than having things fall through the cracks, which happens so often because once it goes below the fold, you don't see it anymore. And so many things don't get taken care of that should. So, you know, setting a goal for yourself on how many you want to have in there and you'll fall off the wagon once in a while. I get that. You can also get right back on it. It doesn't take long once you get to that point of a manageable amount. What are other areas that you get into? You said, so email management is one. I have a, a couple of things that I'll, I'll pull out like a stop. This is really something anybody can do. I'll have you make two columns or three columns on a piece of paper and draw two lines. And at the top of the left one, I would put the word stop. And in the middle one, I put start. And in the right column, I put continue. And I walk people through that exercise of literally thinking about what you do during your day that you want to stop, start, and continue. A lot of times this is great for the beginning of a new year also. You can do it as often as you want, but it's a great way to start a year off knowing what you want to stop doing from last year or start doing that you haven't been doing. Of course, there's always things that you need to continue doing. That's an exercise that works great for any person, any board of directors, any team. If you have initiatives that you want to do and you're just trying to make some changes, it's a great way to help people to get through and just get in a different vision of what it is you want to stop, start, and continue. And then you can pick one or two things at a time to work on from each column. And it just gives you a nice focus point of what you want to do. And I'm obviously oversimplifying that, but it's, you know, it can be a very powerful exercise for someone to get that, to get rid of all the junk. In the stop column, usually it's they need to start delegating. <laughs> That's the stuff they need to stop is the stuff they need to start delegating. So it becomes pretty obvious. So I guess I'm just wondering at a high level, just how do you define productivity and being more productive? We talk about this at the high level. Like what are we trying to get to? A lot of times it's a feeling. And I know that's really kind of weird to hear, but it's it's a stress, like less stress feeling. And it's more of a feeling in control. But I think the overall, what I see emerge from going through the different steps that we take is confidence. Things that people didn't think they could do before, they now can. Things that they know that they shouldn't be doing, they stop. And, and so there's just a confidence in building that knowing of what you want and actually finding the language or the way to get that. And that is, I guess it is a feeling, but it's also just a sense of control. And that is whenever I I know that they're ready, where I have helped them to create capacity. That's my big job is I help people create capacity. I help clear their space, whether it's their time space, their physical space, because I do help people declutter physically as well virtually. But just feeling that sense of ease and knowing that I know what I need to do and having a plan in place, a clear plan. And it's their own plan. That's the beauty of it. That it's something that they want to do. It's what they envision. And having taken the time to step back long enough to say, 
this is what I want. And I've never had any time or anybody to guide me through that. Now I do. And it becomes just, uh, it just says a, a sense of success, which I think is what they're after. So what do you find advisors tend to not understand or miss about being more productive and are therefore making themselves horrifically unproductive? Like, what are we not, what are we not getting? Because no one sets out to say, like, I got a great idea. I'm going to run my business with no sense of control and a miserable sense of confidence, <laughs> right? Like, no one made it a goal to do it this way, but right. we may sort of unwittingly end up that way. Yeah. So, like, what what do we not understand or what are we missing about that, you know, leads us to all these not necessarily productive habits? I think the fact that people think they have to do it all. And that they, this because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And not literally stopping to think about what it is they're doing. If you ever want to find out what you're doing, there's a, a couple of different apps. One is called Clockify. I think it's clockify.me. And you can track your time for a week and see exactly what you're doing. People don't even have a sense of what they're doing with their time. They always say, I never waste time. But then after a week, they're like, oh my God, I waste so much time doing X, Y, Z. Or I check email 17 hours a week. So it's not really knowing what you're doing. And then because you feel like you have to do it all, you don't delegate. It's just, it's a big mishmash of just trying to do it all and not having any, any boundaries of what they shouldn't be doing or should be doing. And as a result, what happens is their self-care and people just are tired, they're miserable, they're cranky. And so it's just just realizing that there are ways to overcome being unproductive. And they're not difficult. It just that you have to just be ready. So tell us a little bit more about your business. Like what do you actually do in the in the advisor world? Well, I'm a as a productivity coach, I, I work with advisors to help them go through all the things that we just talked about. And as I said earlier, we, we have two sides to our practice. I help them create capacity, and then we have a, another arm of the business that helps them to fill that capacity with growth uh, strategies for referrals. When we, we're speakers. We've written several books. Michelle and I have written a book called A Woman's Way. We work with both male and female advisors, but we've always had a a special little micro niche within that or where we support female advisors because the, they're, they need the extra support, we believe, and hopefully things like that are going to change, but we feel like we want to contribute to that. I'm just curious, what like what is it that you think makes the support needs for women advisors different or distinct? I think, uh, well, the subtitle of the book is Empowering Female Financial Advisors to Authentically Lead and Flourish in a Man's World. And the industry was created by men. God bless them. I, I think it's amazing. There's no man bashing going on here. I think it's just a matter that women do things differently. They do it a man's way. Do, men do it a man's way, and a woman does it a woman's way. And sometimes, because there's not as much, there's not as many female advisors. There's not as many role models, and so people are taught to do things a man's way, and it's not comfortable. It's not wrong. It's just not comfortable. So, we've rewrote the book, which by the way, is applicable to both men and women, the tools that we have in there, but it's geared toward female advisors on how they can really just be okay in their own skin and not try to be, do things a man's way. Can you help me understand like just an, ex I guess just like an example, of, like what's a, a man's way thing or like a traditional, we'll call it a traditional way thing that 
you view as as distinct or different for how women would approach it in the business? Yeah, on the productivity side, it, females seem to have a lot more roles, a lot more roles in their life that they play, and just really realizing that that they cannot do it all, and it's okay to ask for help. That is a, a, a females are women are not as as apt to help, ask for help or. And that's just not in their their ways. When it comes to the referral side, it's again, it's just asking for referrals. They do it differently than than men do. Men have a more direct way, or they are okay with door knocking, or they're okay with dialing and uh, smiling and dialing. Women just they're more about the relationship. Not that men aren't. This is a generality. I'm just talking in general. So we just we just really felt that it was needed to allow women to exercise their nurturing ways or their their relationship ways and, and it's okay to do it your way and not have to do it the hard way for them. It feels like they have a burlap sack on sometimes when they're trying to do things that are not comfortable. It's like abrasive for them to approach someone the traditional way. And as you're engaging advisors that do want to coach, just like how does it work? I mean, I've, I've seen productivity coaches and everything from like hourly engagements will you know we'll work with you or a couple hours to to build a few of your habits into like year-long engagements this is an ongoing coaching process and you have to commit to a year at a time how does it work for you in in working with advisors okay for the most part when somebody hires us they they get two coaches they get myself and michelle and michelle as i said is a referral coach and i'm the productivity coach so it's a it's a, a two-coach approach where they they Come on for a year. It's two calls a month. They're about 45, 50 minutes each. There's 23 calls. There's only one call in December and two every month. And they have unlimited access to us through email between those calls. That's if they want to come in and work first, of course, to work with me to get capacity. Not everybody works with me and not everybody ever works with Michelle, but they have access. And so if they want to come in and they're feeling like they're just not quite cutting the productivity that they want, they'll come to me and I'll work with them. It might be one call. It could be six months. And then when they, we feel like the capacity and the confidence is there, they'll work with Michelle and she helps them to actually work with their network and their clients and their COIs and sort of dissects their network and helps them to understand who to approach and when to approach and how to build their business naturally by relationship referrals. So, but if somebody just wants productivity, we do have a package that's just six months to work with me alone. That's something that it can be done in six months. We know the referral process takes a little bit longer because there's a lot more, there are many more components. So we've always had at least a year long whenever referrals are involved. And it's the same setup, six months, two calls a month at 45 minutes. So that's uh, basically how we work. And is there a typical cost for engagements. I, I don't know if you guys charge monthly or charge for a six month scope, but like how does how does pricing work or is there a particular price range? Like what what should someone expect to be investing into themselves if they want to go down the road of a productivity coach? Everything we do here is pretty simple. It's six hundred dollars a month. That's about it. And that includes all the stuff that we just talked about. So it's six hundred a month, whether it's the year long or the six months. So as you've gone down this road, I'm I you know, I'm always cognizant kind of people in the business of coaching, consulting, and training to financial advisors end up building businesses that are not dissimilar from advisory firms themselves, right? Mm-hmm. You're you're 
in the business of selling your expertise to people that you need to get on board who may have all of their own issues that distract them from it from time to time, but we want them to take our recommendations. I'm curious from your from your own perspective, what surprised you the most about building a business serving the advisor community? The thing that was most surprising and, and the most aha moment that we had was that we help advisors do exactly what they do for their clients. We help them to, to feel like they're in control. We ha- to have a future, to have the fed many advisors who weren't making a lot of money. And we've helped them to turn that around to making a lot of money and feeling like they can grow. We've had people have to move out of their buildings because they've gotten too many people. They have to you know, get more, more space. So we really help them do it for them what they, they do for their clients, which is just to grow and have a future and build a legacy with their practice. So anything that surprised you about how that's grown, how that's built from what you expected when you started down this road? Yeah, it was surprising because we had not even been focusing on advisors. And, and as, as that they started to approach us, it surprised us that that, that was the reason that they were coming to us. So what was the low point for you in, in building your own business? The low point? Hmm, my low point in my business? Oh, probably kind of similar to the area of 2008 for you. I had worked myself into an illness. I had worked so many hours. I was working nonstop. And my body finally said, hey, guess what? You need a rest. And so for about four years, I had to do just that. You know, I had to like slow down. During that time, I was very frustrated and because I'm a go-getter and I wanted to get things done. But it really forced me to slow down. During that time, I became a certified organizer coach and I created online courses and I learned how to make passive income. And so while it was a low point, There was uh, many silver linings during that time, but that was a low point. And that's kind of what I help people. I want to help them prevent getting to that point of working themselves sick because your body can only do so much. So any, any takeaways, I guess, in, in retrospect or going forward of doing that differently or not doing that to yourself in the future? Well, I've, I've certainly changed since then because I had no choice. And it was funny because I was doing so many things. And the, when I stopped doing it, nobody noticed. And <laughs> yeah, and that was kind of a wake-up call. It's like nobody really cared that I didn't do this anymore or that anymore. And I thought, okay, so I was doing all that for myself. And look what it got me. So I really became just very particular about what I wanted to do and who I did it with and all the lessons that we talked about today have been hard learned by myself. So there are ways of doing things that are much, much easier than, than having to work that many hours. The saying of working smarter, not harder is a real true statement. And slowing down to speed up, I never understood that until then. You, just, you can slow down and you slow down and, and you really can stop and think about what you're doing and be more deliberate about what you put your time and energy into and once you get to that point, it feels very good <laughs> and very clarifying. So that's that's how I got to that point and where it took me. So advi- for advisors who are maybe newer to the industry, you know, coming in today and and perhaps want want to set better habits and patterns, so they don't have to call you in five to ten years when they're in the 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 bad place that we've been talking about for some of the others. What advice would you give? newer advisors today to try to be on a on a better path in the first place 
I think the, the first one is to find a mentor, somebody that looks like you and, and is already where you want to go. And, and really just, you don't have to be a pest to that person. Just really watch and learn and, and ask if you can ask. And the other thing is to find ways to be as productive as you can early on. Hire a coach. I don't care. It doesn't have to be me. Just whoever it is, hire somebody because that small investment up front will give you years of time back in the future. And it gives you the time to grow your practice earlier, methodically, and it, it'll pay dividends many times over throughout the years. And it's a great investment. We have, I have met people that have been in business 20, 25 years that have hired us and they are like, I wish I'd have met you like so long ago <laughs> because it, it, you just don't think about it. You just do. People just do and don't stop to think. So that was, that's something to think about is to become as productive as you can early on. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success can mean very different things to different people. And so you, know, you, you build this wonderfully successful coaching consulting business with the advisor community. But I'm, I'm wondering just how do you define success for yourself at this point? I think my definition of success is having a lifestyle business. My work is super important to me, but freedom is equally important. <laughs> That's one of my values or one of my needs, actually. Success is also being able to pay someone to do things rather than doing it myself. I still have a few things I can farm out if I you know, sat down and thought about it. I'm always constantly working on that and thinking about who can do what I don't want to do. Success is being able to buy time for me. So that means paying somebody else to do certain things. I love it. Just, I love the, the, just the clarity of that, like success is being able to buy time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you can always like, like always say you can make more money, but you can never make more time. And this, this past year really has clarified that for a lot of people. True enough. Well, thank you so much, Patty, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It has been my pleasure and, and I've had a blast. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me here. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>